All right, um, so um, today we're going to talk about Jesus. Um, that may not come as a surprise to you. For those of you who have been around Seven Hills a lot, I, I hope that what I'm always doing is talking about Jesus. Um, ultimately, uh, the reason that we talk about Jesus is because he's our hope, right? He's our strength. He's our security. He's our, our strong tower. Um, Jesus, if you look at Scripture, wears several different hats, not unlike many of you in this room that wear different hats. Um, but one of the ways in which we look at the different roles um, that Jesus uh, plays is this idea of prophet, priest, and king, right? Prophet, priest, and king. And so when you look at Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, you know, just to be really frank, the one that we really like is the priestly one. It's what Hebrews talks about. It's, uh, it's the one that, you know, makes God feel the most safe and the most close to us, right? It's this, it's this priest who's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Man, it's, a, it's awesome. It's wonderful that Jesus is a priest. Jesus is also a king. In other words, he's got a plan that, uh, that he put into motion 2,000 years ago, or depending on how you want to talk about it, even before that, from the very beginning of time, and he's working out that plan. The part of Jesus that most of us find kind of uncomfortable, or the hat that he wears that most of us are uncomfortable with, is the hat that he wears of the prophet, right? And uh, part of the reason that that hat makes us uncomfortable is because what prophets do is usually they tell us things that we don't want to hear, usually about ourselves, right? And, and so we're less comfortable when Jesus gets a little personal and starts meddling. Uh, let, me, let me read a quote really quickly. There's a document that was written long ago called the Westminster Confession. It's broken up into different segments, but there's a question that's in the Westminster Larger Catechism that asks this question, how does Christ or how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? And I'm going to read the answer, and you just, you know, just think in your own heads whether or not that's a meaningful answer to you. It's true, but does it mean something to you? The answer is this. Christ executes the office of a prophet in his revealing to the church in all ages by his spirit and word in diverse ways of administration, the whole will of God, in all things concerning their edification and salvation, right? That's a, it's kind of a lot. It's kind of wordy. You probably need to ponder on it a little bit. But essentially what that, um, that answer to the question is, is that Jesus tells us what's true about us, what's true about God, what's true about salvation, and how it is that we're to to live life. And he does it through his Holy Spirit, and he does it through his word, right? And so those, that's meaningful. Like, you just have to unpack it a little bit. Now, we don't, um, in our culture, really have that many prophets. In our culture, we have kings, but they're all figureheads. And, uh, and really, we don't have that many priests in our culture. If we do, or if you're anything like me, when I think about a priest, you know, from, in a sort of secular way, I think about Conan the Barbarian and sort of these priests that existed in this temple. Like, that's what I think about. And so today we're going to talk about how Jesus is a prophet, but we're going to use three metaphors to see exactly uh, how his sort of prophetic role is carried out. And those three ways that prophetic role is carried out is that Jesus is a prophet in the same way, and he's a prophet in the sense that he's like a great teacher, right? For those of you who have ever had a great teacher, he is a prophet in the sense that he's also like a great coach, you know, maybe some of you had a great coach over the years, whether in music or in band or in athletics, but he's also a prophet in the sense that he's like a great doctor who tells you the bad news, right? And so we're going to jump into each of those in just a few moments, but before we do that, I'm going to pray, and, uh, and then after I'm done praying, we're actually going to use a little clip um, from a movie that came out in 1989 called The Dead Poets Society. And by the way, we're going to have another movie clip later on, 
that's also from the 80s, 1986. As I wrote this sermon and I looked back over it, I thought, man, I need to see a movie from like just 2000 and something on up, right? But anyway, we're going to jump into that. And, uh, and hopefully the illustrations are going to sort of serve the point. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for each person that's in this room this morning. I thank you that um, the, uh, the, the words that the musicians sang this morning and the words that Jeremy uttered as he uh, led us before you, that all of those words would remind us today, Father, that we're here to hear from you. We're here to, um, to lay down on the autopsy table and uh, to allow you to look at us and, uh, and to correct our bad thinking, um, our untruthful thinking. That, Father, that uh, we are here today to lay down on that autopsy table and to have you look at um, the way that we are living our lives and to uh, correct us and to show us where our behavior and our actions um, have not only been wrong but have been hurtful towards ourselves and towards other people and even to you and Father again, uh, that this morning we would lay down on the autopsy table and that we would allow you to look into our minds and into our hearts and that you might show us where it is that we have um, disease and we have uh, brokenness, Father. Please uh, give us your spirit to allow us to hear the hard things that you would tell us today. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. All right, we're going to start with this clip from the Dead Poets Society. All right. So, if you've never seen Dead Poets Society, I recommend it. It won an Academy Award back in, again, 1989. Hello. Some of you weren't allowed alive then. Anyway, but what you see in this, um, that little clip right there is Robin Williams, who's playing this teacher at this private school. He's taking all of these boys who come from privileged families, who probably know exactly the right way to live life and the right order of things to do in order to be successful in his life, in their lives. And part of what he does is, as a great teacher, he challenges what they think or challenges what they believe, right? He, he says, you know, come up here and stand on this desk and look around and see things from this perspective. That's part of what great teachers do. Great teachers give us the ability to see ourselves and to see the world with a kind of a new set of eyes. And part of what really great teachers do is also challenge what we believe and show that part of what we believe maybe is wrong. Some of you have had teachers like those before. Maybe you had a teacher in high school that really enabled you to see a subject or the world in a very different way. Maybe some of you had a, a youth pastor when you were in junior high or high school that did the same thing. Maybe you were mentored by someone who enabled you to sort of see the world through a different set of eyes and really to show you that so much of what you thought and so much of what you believed maybe actually didn't measure up with reality. Maybe it was wrong thinking. Maybe it was bad thinking. Part of what we see Jesus as a, as a great prophet, what he does is he acts as a teacher to correct that that bad and wrong thinking, when we believe things that are not true. I'm going to turn our eyes really quickly to Luke chapter 15. And Luke chapter 15 is a story uh, that is most commonly called the prodigal son. I, I talk about it kind of all the time. It's just too good not to. And, uh, and, and we're going to see Jesus playing the role of teacher in this story. Again, he's talking to a crowd that has, um, just say it this way, religious people in it and, and irreligious people in it. He's talking to, to both sides here. But let me read beginning in verse 11 says this. Again, this is Jesus as a prophet, really acting as a great teacher. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Okay, let me just pause for a second right here and say this. 
you know, in, in sort of the ancient Near East in this culture, you know, family and respect and honor and shame were what it was all about. This idea of sort of the elder son and the younger son receiving inheritance is something that all of Jesus' listeners would have understood. And when Jesus told this piece of the story, all of the people, all of his listeners would have kind of responded the same way. They would have said, ew, that kid is bad, right? He, he's shockingly bad. He's disrespectful to his father. He essentially is saying that he wishes that his father was dead, doesn't want to have a relationship with him at all, right? And essentially, what has happened in this story is Jesus is, again, he's sort of allowing the people to get drawn into the story. And in this story, this young man who goes away from home, he goes away from home and he experiences sort of living life, the life of the irreligious person, living however he wants to live. And in the story, after experiencing the emptiness and the dehumanization that that life offers and offered him, he decided that it was time to go back home. Verse 20 says this, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still, still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate, right? Again, the crowd that Jesus was speaking to, irreligious, religious, good people, bad people, this would have been shocking to all of them, right? Every single one of them would be like, what? How could the father have done this, right? Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. The older brother was angry and refused to go in because of the mercy that the father was showing this younger brother. His father came out and entreated him. In other words, his dad came out and said, I want you to come into the party as well. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him, right? And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay, so Jesus is a great teacher. He's acting here as a prophet. He's trying to teach the crowd something. The bad people, the good people, the irreligious people, the religious people. He's trying to teach them something. What is Jesus trying to do? Well, by using a story, part of what Jesus is doing is he's sort of sneaking past their defenses, right? He's sort of coming in the back door in order to draw them in, in order to teach them something. There's a book called Influencer, which Jeremy Marshall actually turned me on to years ago now. And in this book by Patterson and Grenny, essentially what the book says is that people can't handle the truth. Like the least effective way to communicate truth to anyone is to really directly just tell them, right? Which sounds so counterintuitive. It seems like that should be the best way for us to hear what's true. But research, you know, sociological research, psychological research shows that it's not. The best way to convey truth to someone is to tell them a story, right? It's crazy, but but that's what Jesus 
is doing here. It's what Nathan did to David after David had had an affair with Bathsheba, right? What Nathan did was came to David and told him a story, snuck past David's intellectual defenses, and hit him right in the heart, right? What Jesus is doing here, as a great teacher, as great teachers do, he's making his way past their heads into their hearts, right? He's sneaking past their defenses. The second thing that we see Jesus is doing here is he's correcting wrong thinking. In some respects, you might argue that that's the primary thing that Jesus is doing here, but he's correcting their wrong thinking about sin, okay? So think about it for a second. The Pharisees, who are the really good people, the religious people, and then everybody else who are sort of, you know, sort of on a spectrum of kind of irreligious to religious or really good to really bad people, those people are all in the crowd. And what he's doing is he's basically saying, especially to the Pharisees, is he's saying, look, most of you think that sin is about either keeping the rules or breaking the rules. Keeping the rules or breaking the rules. That's, that's the way you typically think about sin. And what Jesus says here is he says, sin is not breaking the rules. Sin is harming a relationship. Okay, just think about that for a second, right? Sin is ultimately harming a relationship. And in this case, the relationship is with God. I have a friend in my life who does a really good job. It's bizarrely intuitive for this person. I've always been religious. And so for me, sin was always a matter of, you know, basically, you know, keeping the rules and not keeping the rules. That was the way I always thought about sin. My, my idea of sin was about this big. And this person who's a good friend of mine always understands intuitively in some respects that sin is always about broken relationships. It helps you see things in a totally different way. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Is he's saying, look, you need to reframe the way you think about sin and realize that ultimately what sin is, is about breaking a relationship, right? It's about hurting someone that loves you and someone who you love as well. So it's wrong thinking about sin. The second thing he does is he corrects wrong thinking about sinners, right? He corrects wrong thinking about sinners. Again, right, part of what Jesus is doing in this story is he's basically saying, look, some of you in the room or some of you on the hillside or some of you where we're speaking, when you think about sinners, you think about those people over there, right? In fact, I meant to say this at the beginning, but this sermon of all sermons is one where I would tell you your tendency is as I talk to you about Jesus as a prophet, it's going to be like, oh, I totally wish my daughter was here, or I completely wish my husband was here. And what you need to realize is that you're here, right? And this, this Jesus, who is a prophet, who is a great teacher, wants to speak to you and to your heart. Wrong thinking about sinners. Again, what he's saying here is that we have a tendency, the religious ones of us, to think about us versus them. We have a tendency to think about, um, you know, the good people are the people that keep the rules, the bad people are the people, people that break the rules. But what Jesus is saying here is, in this story, is he's saying both the religious people, the older brothers, and the irreligious people, the younger brothers, are both equally far from God. Both equally far from God. The older brothers, that's me. The younger brothers, that's some of you out there. We're all equally broken. And not only are we equally broken, we're far more broken than we realize. That's what Jesus, our prophet, our great teacher, is doing. He snuck past our defenses to redefine sin as a broken relationship, but he's also snuck past our defenses to kind of go, hey, guess what? You know, you have a tendency to think about the brokenness of that other person all the time. You need to be aware that you're just as broken, that you're just as much of a sinner, right? You're just as much of a rebel. He needs us to hear that. 
wrong thinking about sin. He addresses wrong thinking about sinners, but he also addresses particularly this crowd's wrong thinking about God. Part of what Jesus is saying here is he's saying your tendency is to see God as a judge with a black robe and long white hair and a long white beard with a gavel who's slamming it onto the table and saying, guilty, right? Or our tendency to think about is to think about God as a referee, like, hey, sorry, you broke the rules, you're out, right? Or to think about uh, God as a scorekeeper. You know, it's three to one, you lose, sorry, right? But part of what Jesus does here is he's saying, all of those ways in which you think about God, there's an element of truth in them probably, but ultimately what Jesus says here is he said, says that God is less like a scorekeeper, less like a judge, and he's more like a father, right? Who, I, I don't know about how many of you guys have, have children out there yet, but part of what you'll understand one day when you have children is that what you long for from your children is just to be aware of their brokenness. And you long to show them grace, and you long to show them mercy. You long to wrap your arms around them and say, I love you. I'm proud of you. I think you're great. I, of course, I forgive you. And so Jesus paints this picture, repaints this picture, reframes this idea of God, not as a judge, not as a scorekeeper, not as a referee, but as a father who longs for his children to come into a relationship with him. This is Jesus as our prophet, as our great teacher, correcting our wrong thinking. The question is, so what are the ways in which we need Jesus, our prophet, our great teacher, to correct what we think or believe, right? I promise you, in the same way that the Pharisees had wrong thinking about God and about sin and about themselves, I guarantee you we do too, right? In fact, we may, we may have as much or more, right? I, I don't know how to argue that other than to say that most of us in our culture um, are sort of starved for biblical uh, interaction, right? Most of us have a high level of biblical illiteracy. But part of what you need to understand is that you've got to invite Jesus into your life as this great teacher, right? This prophet to address what you think and what you believe. And so let me just throw out a list of things. Maybe Jesus, our prophet, needs to address your view of sexuality. You know, again, this is so politically incorrect, but the Bible's pretty clear that sexual relationships need to occur within the bounds of marriage. Like, it's just kind of clear, right? And Jesus will offend your wrong thinking at points. Not only that, but what about gossip and slander and lying? You know, it's funny, in the world that I came from, um, the people that were in authority over me were much more concerned. They would have freaked out if I'd ever said a cuss word, you know? That would have been like just the unforgivable sin. But gossip and slander and lying, yeah, those aren't so bad. You know, they're not such a big deal. But guess what? Jesus and Scripture in general makes a huge deal out of gossip and slander and lying because ultimately those destroy relationships, right? Marriage and divorce, tithing, mercy and justice, heaven and hell. If we truly allow Jesus to be our great prophet, then we need to prepare or be prepared to have our thoughts about what is true and good and right and wrong offended, right? Be prepared to be offended, and we need to be prepared to change what we assume to be true about God and about ourselves. It's going to offend us. It's going to, we're going to fight it. We don't want to hear it, right? In fact, there's that George Bernard Shaw quote uh, up before the service began. I don't know if you saw it. But there's a great George Bernard Shaw quote where he says, if you're going to tell the truth to somebody, you better make them laugh or else they're going to kill you, right? Guess what? Jesus didn't make them laugh, right? But he told them 
and he tells us the truth. Jesus is our, he's our prophet, and in that, he's a great teacher, right? But he's not just a great teacher. He's also like a great coach, right? And what great coaches do is they change not just the way that we think, but they really change our behavior. They address our wrong or broken or bad behavior. Okay, here's movie clip number two. This one is from a movie called Hoosiers that came out in 1986, okay? And it's about um, a coach who's played by Gene Hackman who uh, takes this little team that is, in some respects, a pretty decent little team, but he corrects a lot of the, their sort of practices that are not good, and he replaces them with good behavior and good practices. So uh, watch this little clip, and we'll jump back in. All right, that clip in the movie is about nine minutes long. And basically what he's doing in that clip in the movie is over the course of nine minutes, he's undoing all these bad habits and bad behaviors in regard to basketball that they've picked up. And he's sort of creating and giving them new behaviors that are going to help them be better basketball players. And spoiler alert, help them be really successful as a basketball team. Okay, I'll let you watch the 86 Hoosiers movie there. But the point is, is that Jesus says some very similar things. That in the same way that Jesus as a great prophet, as a great teacher, comes in and corrects our thinking, in the same way he's like a coach who comes in and corrects our bad or wrong or broken behavior. Let's jump into Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is right in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew 5 through 7. And I'm just going to read verses um, 5 through 9. He says this. Again, again, this is a broad crowd, right? This is religious people, irreligious people, Pharisees, the whole gamut are out there. And he addresses uh, some of their behavior. He says this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. In other words, he gives an example of bad behavior, right, of wrong behavior. And he says, don't do that. He goes on to say this, truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. And he goes on and teaches them the Lord's Prayer. What is Jesus doing here? Part of what he's doing here is he's correcting their broken behavior. Now, again, he's speaking to a crowd in general. This is the Sermon on the Mount. So he's speaking to the crowd in general, but the disciples specifically, and he knows that there's always a temptation to pray incorrectly. It's funny, this morning, I knew I was going to be preaching on this, and I always try to spend some time praying in the morning before I preach. It's more than anything an act of desperation on my part, honestly. Um, But it's interesting because I find myself, you know, praying the same things over and over and over and over and over again. And it's funny, as I read through this this morning, it reminded me, hey, remember, God's a good father, right? He already knows what you need before you ask him, right? You don't have to pray, you know, God, please be here this morning, or God, please bless me, or God, don't let me mess up, or God, whatever, over and over and over again. It's probably okay for me just to turn to him and say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. To kind of go, this is your church. These are your people. I'm your servant, as broken as I am. Please do it, Lord, right? Or maybe one of my favorite prayers in all of Scripture is this. Jesus tells this story about these two guys who are in the temple, and, uh, and one guy's a Pharisee, and he says, I'm thankful I'm not like these other people. And then there's a tax collector who's a bad guy, an irreligious person. And all the tax collector says is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's just short, right? 
And so part of what Jesus is doing in here is he's addressing the crowd, the disciples' temptation to pray incorrectly, and he's saying, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the Pharisees who pray publicly to get attention and to have people think they're great, right? God doesn't answer those prayers, Jesus says. He says, don't be like the Gentiles either who think that God will respond if they just pray enough. And let me just again fill in the blank there and say, not just the Gentiles, but even me, even some religious people who do that. Like if I just pray sincerely enough, if I just pray enough, then God will hear me. God isn't like a dad watching a football game on Saturday afternoon who's utterly distracted. That's not, that's not who he is. He's a good father who longs for us to come into his presence. He already knows what you need, and he longs to give it to you. That's why Jesus says, pray like this, our father. So what areas of our behavior do we need Jesus, our great prophet, our great coach, to address? All you have to do is go right back to Matthew 5 through 7. That's called the Sermon on the Mount again, where Jesus not only tells us to pray, but how to pray. He not only tells us to give, but how to give. Jesus tells us not only to live, but how to live our lives so that people see us and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Jesus not only tells us not to murder, right? We kind of already knew that. But he goes on to say, we need to speak to one another in ways that never dehumanizes another person, right? Like, do not dehumanize other people. Do not be disrespectful to other people. Jesus reaffirms the command not to commit adultery, but he always takes things deeper and makes them more nuanced and says that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. The list goes on and on and on. Jesus is all about correcting not only our wrong thinking, but our wrong behavior. And if we truly want to follow Jesus, then we need to allow Jesus to be our prophet. We need to be prepared not only to have our thinking challenged, but our actions and our behavior challenged as well, right? And again, let me just reiterate, what did, what did everybody do? What happened to the prophets in the Old Testament? They were all killed, right? They were murdered because they were telling people things that they couldn't handle, right? That's what prophets do, is they tell us things that are painful. They tell us things that are offensive. They tell us things that go against what we believe and what we think, and they tell us things that go against what we want to do. And Jesus, our great prophet, needs to have that role in your life and in my life too. So again, as a prophet, Jesus is like a great coach. As a prophet, Jesus is like a great teacher. But finally, as a prophet, Jesus is like a great doctor who gives us both the bad news and the good news. You know, some of you who have been around Seven Hills long enough have heard me you know, tell all these stories twice, probably. But one of the stories I've told before is um, that my mom was uh, diagnosed with um, heart disease several years back now, probably 10 or 12 years ago. And uh, in that side of my family, my mom's family, um, the generation preceding her, the women all lived like the, their 80s or 90s and were pretty overweight um, and pretty unhealthy, but they lived, right? The men of that generation, nobody made it out of their 40s, right? They were equally as unhealthy, but for some reason they all died, and most of the time was heart disease. So it was really no surprise when my mom was diagnosed with heart disease. The doctor um, basically gave her the bad news of saying, hey, look, you've got three arteries that are almost fully clogged. Now, my first recommendation is probably that you do open heart surgery. And he said, there's a possibility that we can do a lesser you know, invasive procedure where we put three stents in, but the problem is the only way that's going to work and the only way it's going to last is if ultimately you change the way that you're living. Like you're going to have to, you're going to, have to eat differently, right? You're going to have to rest more, right? You're going to have to exercise. You're going to have to do some stuff that you don't 
want to do. But if you do that, then there's a chance that these three stents will help really prolong your life. But what this doctor was fundamentally doing was he was telling my mom any number of different things that she didn't want to hear. One, he was saying, your heart is bad, right? And number two, he was saying, you know, it's going to be up to this, this, and this procedure in order to rescue you, in order to save you, in order to make your heart good. Jesus, our prophet, is also like that, right? He tells us and is willing to show us that our hearts are bad. Listen to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 is a story about a religious young guy coming up to Jesus, right? Verse 17 says this, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let me just go ahead and tell you, um, for those of you who have read this passage before or studied this passage, there's more wrong in this passage than you can possibly imagine, right? The religious young guy comes up to Jesus, says, good teacher, he has a conception of good. What must I do, right? What performance must I give in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Oh, by the way, you got it right, but you just don't know why, because I am God. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to them, to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. In other words, check, right? God's good, so am I. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. What was Jesus doing here as this great doctor? Like a good doctor, Jesus was diagnosing this young man's disease. Jesus' first diagnostic exam was to hold the man up to the 10 commandments. You know the commandments. And then this man who surely believed all of these right things He seemed to have done many of the right things. But again, what Jesus is doing is he's saying that wasn't the problem. The problem was that he had a heart problem. He loved his wealth more than he loved God. Ultimately, what Jesus was doing here is he's saying, look, you know the commandments, but you can't even keep the first one. Your problem is ultimately your heart. You know, I've had a professor in seminary, Dr. Krabbenam, six foot eight, Dutch guy. I've talked about him before. But um, he sounded like Count Chocula. If you guys remember the Count Chocula commercials from long ago. Um, But he would always say, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. In other words, what we really wrestle with isn't a a knowledge problem. This man believed the right thing, right? What we really wrestle with isn't really purely a behavioral problem. This guy was actually living life pretty well. But ultimately, what Krabbenam was saying, what Jesus is saying here is that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, right? It's ultimately that you love something your family, your job, your freedom, your wealth, right? You love something more than you love God. So Jesus, our great prophet, tells us that what we really need is not just new thinking, it's not just new behavior, but we really ultimately need a new heart, right? We can have all that great theology, we can think rightly. We can have great orthopraxy. In other words, we can live holy lives, we can be good. However, We can do both of those things and still have hearts that are very, very far away from God. That's why Jesus said, uh, ultimately, he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, do the right things, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, do the right things, believe the right things. And it says, Jesus will say this, then I will tell them plainly, 
I never knew you, right? You believed a lot of right stuff. You did a lot of right, a lot of right stuff, but your hearts were far from me, right? What I ultimately want from you is a relationship. What you ultimately need is a heart that desires me and loves me and trusts in me, right, as your Savior, right, and my Father's as your good, good Father. Jesus said the heart of the problem is the problem of your heart. That's why in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, God speaking through him, said this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, right? And again, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, you may believe a lot of the right things, right, and still be far from me, have a heart that is diseased, right? You might be doing a lot of the right things, but your behavior is still ultimately bad, it's wrong. Ultimately, as much as I want you to believe the right things, as much as I want you to do the right things, what I want more than anything is I want your heart. I want to give you a new heart, right? I want to cleanse your heart. I want to make you alive because it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks and the body acts. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, we would allow your son Jesus to be our prophet. I pray that for those of us in this room who are um, far away from you, that we would um, allow your son Jesus um, to speak into uh, our thoughts and that, um, that the voice of your son Jesus might be louder and clearer than the thoughts of culture or even than our thoughts within us. Father, I pray that we would allow your son Jesus as a great prophet um, to have access to our behavior and that uh, we would trust him as a great coach um, to tell us uh, where our behavior is wrong or where our behavior is broken. Father, I pray that his voice uh, would be louder to us than the voice of the world or than our own voices within us. Father, ultimately, I pray that we would allow your son Jesus as our um, prophet, our great doctor, that we would allow Jesus to speak into our hearts and to, to show us where we have cancer, where we have blocked arteries, where we have disease, and that, Father, that what your son Jesus has to say about our hearts, again, that his voice would be louder than the voices that we hear in culture and in the world. I pray that the voice of your son Jesus would be louder than our own heart, um, than our own voices which seek to distract us from that own heart disease within us. And Father, I pray that we would not kill Jesus, that we would not put him away, that we would not avoid him. But Father, I pray that you would give us your spirit to woo us, to draw us closer and closer to your son Jesus, to not only allow him to be our great prophet, but to be our savior. We pray these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.